Well, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis, although I'm going to admit that we're not going to be here for very long. Genesis 1. I'm going to put this down real quick. Probably already have the passage we're going to be talking about memorized. It's kind of funny how sometimes in life you just have those recurring themes that come up. And over the past couple of weeks, I've had one that's just kind of been coming up over and over and over again. It started with a series we were going through in youth group on Wednesday nights by Matt Chandler on apologetics. One of the nights he had talked about creation and how we can be affirmed in our faith and how science and our faith don't necessarily clash. And so that kind of is where it started coming up. But then my mom called me up and she, she has been wanting to do this for quite a while, bringing the girl, uh, my girls and the family down to the Creation Museum and uh, going down and checking that out, and then also going to the ark. And so I took a vacation just a couple of weeks ago where we got to go and experience the ark encounter, which is incredible. It's amazing. It, makes, it gives you just a whole new perspective on what God did through Noah, uh, a man of faith, and he just trusted God. And I was like, man, you have to trust God to make a boat that big. It's just incredible to see. But I just creation is one of those topics that has just really been in the, in the forefront of my thinking and I've been wanting to talk about it for a while, and it just seemed like now was the right time. Just to forewarn you, I normally use four or five pages of notes when I talk, and sometimes I still go over. Today I've got seven, and so if I seem like I'm going a little bit fast, it's, that's the reason why. I also try to include more pictures so I don't have to describe things as thoroughly to you. So hopefully that will aid in getting us out of here at a reasonable hour. Before I get started, though, I wanted to show you something that my grandmother gave me. I always thought that I was my grandmother's favorite grandchild growing up. Uh, I think a big part of that was because my brothers picked on me so much, she felt sorry for me, and not, she gave me things. Sometimes she didn't give to other people. But one of the things that uh, I thought was a sign of my grandmother's love for me was this puzzle. And I don't know if you can see it really very well at all. It's, uh, it's a little 500-piece puzzle. And I was just like, oh, thank you, Grandma, for giving me this puzzle. And again, I thought it was a sign of being her favorite grandchild. It didn't take me long when I finally unpacked it and started tearing it apart to put it back together. I realized that I was her least favorite grandchild. This thing is a wicked puzzle. It is awful. I know you're thinking 500-piece puzzle. You know, my kids can do that. You know, no problem. They're in elementary school. What's your problem? The problem is, is this puzzle is three, or 500 pieces, but it's 3D. Not meaning like those 3D puzzles that grow out. You know, you've probably seen them of the, you know, the Eiffel Tower or, uh, you know, different buildings. This is 3D puzzle in that it has three layers. And the only layer that is solid color is the base layer, the first layer. And it's a sea scene. It's an ocean scene. So you got all these uh, sea creatures and stuff in the background. And then where it gets really wicked is the middle layer and the front layer are clear. Plastic, clear. Some of the pieces have little fish floating around on them that gives you a clue, but some of the pieces are clear and plastic and have nothing on them whatsoever. So all of a sudden, where you could, you know, you, at least you know where the, what side most puzzles pieces, you know, what put side to put them on. These, you're just like, I don't know which side to put it at, on at all. It's just, it's wicked. I did this puzzle one time. It's been in this case. I've never pulled it out again. I was going to pull out a piece so you could see it, but you couldn't see it because it's clear. So I was like, what's the point? And then how am I supposed to get it back into the right spot? I'm not doing it. The reason I tell you about this awful gift my grandmother gave me, grandparents don't do this to your grandkids, the reason I tell you about that is because 
the topic we're talking about with creation, and I don't like to say versus evolution because I think it can kind of create, it can create more barriers. It can, you know, it makes it seem more like a, a battle, and there is a battle going on, but I think it's more of a spiritual battle, and we got to be careful how we communicate this topic with other people. When we talk about creation and evolution, it's a topic that we have to approach humbly because we don't have it figured out. And if there's one red flag that should come up when somebody seems like they've got it all figured out, they don't. And you know, always, we have to approach it humbly, realizing that each puzzle piece that goes into this picture of creation, it can't just seem like it fits in one other direction. It has to fit in every single other direction. It has to not, you, have you ever gotten one of those puzzle pieces that you've, you've connected into another one and it fits perfectly and even the colors align up and then you try to get the other ones around and you're like, oh, that's the wrong piece. I think we've all been there with puzzles and when we try to understand creation and, and science and it's just a huge topic, we got to approach it humbly and recognize that even though something might seem to line up perfectly, it's got to connect in every other direction and multidimensional, this just is crazy with, with creationism and science, it has to connect in every other direction for it to be part of the complete picture of what truth is. And so when we approach this, I just want to keep that in the forefront of our thinking. Einstein, Albert Einstein uh, said it this way, he said, we are in the position of a little child entering into a huge library filled with books in many different languages. The child knows some must have written those, someone must have written those books. It does not know how. It does not understand the language in which they are written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the argument of, in the arrangement of the books, but doesn't know what it is. That's the position that we are in. And, and chances are, we, if we're that child, we don't even know how to read yet, and we're going into that library. That's, what we, that's the task that lies before us. I think we all know what the Bible says about creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the question is, is this true or is this not? If he did, it all makes sense. Everything comes together. If God created, uh, the sun standing still isn't a big deal. Jesus Christ resurrecting, uh, you know, being resurrected from the dead is not, don't take this wrong, is not a big deal scientifically. It's not difficult for him because what? God already created once before. The second time should be easy, right? Or, you know, it's like, I'm not, don't read in too much into the theology there. The idea is there. Okay, you see what I'm saying? If God created the first time, everything else is not a problem. It's not a miracle. It's God. God knowing how he created and being able to manipulate change. However he does it, I do not know. It's not a problem. If it's true... If he did it, it all makes sense. If he didn't, all of Scripture falls apart on this one verse. If he did not create, who gives God the right to tell us what is right and wrong? It all falls apart. Why does he love us? Why would he die for us? You know, it all falls apart. Did God really create the world? Or is this some fable conjured up by prehistoric man in his attempts to explain something that was impossible for him to possibly understand? Is Christianity, our faith in God, based on scientific fact? Or I like to flip this question on its philosophical head. Is science based in God? I like that one a lot better. Is Christianity, our faith in God, based on scientific fact? Or scientific fact based in God? Does our faith truly give us hope? 
Or is it simply, as Freud put it, a drug to help take away the pain of life? Is that what our faith in God can be reduced to? This can be a hugely daunting question for us to figure out as adults. But can you even start to imagine how it is for our children trying to figure out this question? Because they come to the church, this church and then they go to Sunday school and children's church where many of them are right now. And they hear us teach about how God created, God created, God created. But if they went to school and they answered, how was the earth created? And they said, God, they'd probably miss that answer. They'd get it marked off. They'd get it wrong. When our kids watch National Geographic, the Discovery Channel, Nova, you know, PBS, uh, you know, and they see all these amazing things in nature around us, those are some of my favorite channels, do you think that it's confusing to them why God's name is never mentioned at all? Do you think that our kids take notice when they go to a public museum of natural history and God's name is suspiciously missing from every single one of the credit lines? Where is God and creation. Where is God in science? I got a picture up here. This is from the Smithsonian Institute Hall of Human Origins. This is an app that you can get on your phone. And I don't know if you recognize the guy on the right, but if I was prehistoric man, that's what I would look like. That's me. I know you're thinking more handsome with a couple of, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. That's me. You can go and figure out what you would look like thousands of years ago. I, maybe you're not as fascinated. I was fascinated with that. I can actually grow a beard thousands of years ago. Apparently, I, I unevolved and can't grow a beard anymore. But this is the kind of thing we can go to museums and we can check out and we can see. Do you think it's confusing? We've got fossils and pictures of prehistoric man. We look at my picture up here, see what I supposedly look like but we don't have any fossils or sculptures of Adam or God in our museums. They're absent. Our kids are living in a very difficult time and are being sold a lie that you cannot believe in science and God at the same time. Science and God are incompatible. Let's go to this next slide here, Peter. Kids are being sold a lie. Put a picture of uh, Heckel's embryos up here. I use this for a, an illustration of being sold a lie because to this day, you will see this put in many, many textbooks as proof of evolution. But it's interesting because this, is, this picture here has been discounted by even evolutionary scientists because he used great amount of artistic liberty by adding and subtracting different traits from these embryos from different uh, from uh, different animals and humans and fish and whatnot. He added them subtracted details, sometimes copying one from another without changing it and taking different stages of development, putting them all together. Scientifically, this is a mess. Okay, it's, a, it's a, just a total mess. Put them all together and it's like, here is an example of why to believe in evolution. No one really accepts this as being a great illustration and yet to this day, it is still in our textbooks because the scientific truth of it doesn't matter, I should say, matters less sometimes than the evolutionary thought, the naturalistic thought that underlines it. We're being sold a lie that science and God are incompatible. To combat this lie, I want to point out that modern science was practically discovered inside of the church walls. Most of the colleges in the United States, Harvard University, uh, University of Cambridge, uh, Yale, 
you know, Princeton University, all these different ones, and many, many more, many universities, especially within the last hundreds and hundreds of years, have been established by churches or by Christian people. It's incredible. It's incredible looking at. Uh, most of the colleges have been, in the last 300 years, uh, were started uh, and were originally pro- uh, Bible-proclaiming schools. Harvard and Yale were Puritan. Princeton was Presbyterian, and they had rich Christian histories. Harvard was named after a Christian minister. Yale was started by a clergyman. Princeton's first year was taught by Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. Princeton's crest still says, I mean, it says it in Latin, I'm not going to read the Latin, but it means, under God she flourishes. I'm surprised that's still on the crest. That can still be our little, that'll be our little joke. You know, Princeton says that, they don't know it's still there. Don't tell them, or else they might change it. Under God she flourishes. Oxford University, established by religious orders, and likewise Cambridge. And these are the colleges and universities that really modern science in large part was born within, was born within. And at the foundation of these schools was God's word. Job 12, 7 through 10 says this. I'm going to read it quick. But ask the beasts, ask the beasts. I love that. And they will teach you the birds of the heavens and they will tell you or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you and the fish of the sea, they will declare to you who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. The sky points to God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. I'm not going to keep reading that one. You're getting the idea. I'm going to go fast. The next one, Romans 1.20. says, For what can be known about God is plain, simple, easy to be understood. It is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since, again, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Is anyone condemned to hell without knowledge of the Holy One? No, because creation is God's first missionary, God's first testimony to man of his divine nature, that he is the Lord, the sovereign God. So we are without excuse. Pursuit of science was also a pursuit of God. Pursuit of God was also a pursuit of science. They were meshed together, and it was a beautiful thing. God revealed himself in nature, and that was the inspiration for scientists to go and discover God. This truth was the foundation of some of our greatest scientific achievements. I'm going to read through a couple of these because I think it was really awesome. Johann Kepler was the founder of physical astronomy. Kepler wrote, Since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it befits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else of the glory of God. Robert Boyle, father of modern chemistry, he was also active in uh, financially supporting the spread of Christianity throughout missions and Bible, through uh, missions and Bible translation, translations. He actually had some books, some theological books that he put out too. It's kind of funny looking at some of those. Uh, Blaise Pascal, uh, he's known for uh, Pascal's wager. He was one of the greatest early mathematicians and laid the foundations of hydrostatics, hydronamics, and differential calculus and the theory of probability. Smart guys, right? He said, if when he dies, there turns out to be no God and his faith is in vain, he has lost nothing. We have lost nothing if we trust in God, but we have lost everything if we deny him. Uh, Nicholas Steno, this guy, uh, forgive me if I pronounce some of these names incorrectly. 
was a father of stratigraphy. He believed that fossils were laid down in the strata as a result of the flood of Noah. And he wrote that many, many theological words and late in his life took up religious orders. This guy used what scripture said as the foundation for scientific discoveries. Incredible. Isaac Newton invented calculus, discovered the law of gravity and the three laws of motion, anticipated the law of energy conservation, developed the particle theory of light propagation, and invented the reflecting telescope. And he firmly believed in Jesus Christ as his Savior and the Bible as God's word and wrote books on this topic. Carolus Linnaeus, father of biblical, uh, biological taxonomy. His system of classification is still used today. And get this. Get this. One of his main goals in systemizing the varieties of living creatures was an attempt to delineate the original Genesis kinds. His fr uh, he firmly believed in Genesis account as literal history. I can keep going more. Michael Faraday. Uh, we've got... Uh, Matthew Murray, James Simpson, uh, Gregory Mendel, Louis Pasteur, Lord Kelvin, Joseph Lister, Joseph uh, um, Maxwell. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. Many of these guys aren't just like, you know, uh, they, are, they are the fathers of their areas of science. And Scripture and, the, and, and God were not at odds with science. They were inspirations for their discovery in science. It's so important that we recognize that, guys. So important. Christianity did not suffocate science. It inspired it. William H. Bragg, didn't really know the guy, but I like what this quote he said. He said, from religion comes a man's purpose. From science, his power to achieve it. Sometimes people ask if religion and science are not opposed to one another. They are in the same sense that the thumb and the fingers of my hand are opposed to one another. It's an opposition by means of which anything can be grasped. Might be a little bit overstated, but I like the general idea of where he's going with that. They're opposed in one way, but really we're able to grasp more because of it. So the question is, why has our culture embraced evolution? In Chuck Colson's book, How Now Shall We Live? He says we need to look no further than Charles Darwin himself. See, most people believe that Darwin set sail on the Beagle, as the name of his, his ship that we, he was on. I wouldn't be too proud of naming a ship Beagle, you know, little tiny dogs that bark a lot. He set sail on the Beagle. During his travels to the South Pacific, he studied various forms of wildlife, and from what he saw, he began to realize that they had evolved into their present state, and from that, he developed a theory of evolution. That's kind of how the story is told. But the evidence did not lead to the theory. Long before Darwin went on his journey to gather information, he had already turned against the idea of creation and developed the conviction that nature was the result of fixed laws. Essentially, nature was all that is. Nature, we can explain creation through nature. He had decided before he even looked at the evidence. He stacked the deck. Darwin believed in evolution before he saw any evidence, and he didn't want God in the equation. And so he formulated something else to take its place. Now, here's a couple of, I think, quotes from, uh, from Darwin supporters that reveal the heart of what was going on. Thomas Huxley called himself Darwin's bulldog and admitted that he never thought that Darwin's theory amounted to much scientifically. He rallied to his cause for, get this, philosophical reasons. He said, Darwin did the immense service of freeing us forever from the dilemma we refuse to accept creation hypothesis and what have you to propose that can be accepted by any cautious reasoner. He's willing to accept Darwinism simply because it presented an alternative to creationism. 
Herbert Spencer, he was the first person to extend evolution into every area of life from ethics to psychology. And he said he, explained, he, said he felt immense pressure to find a naturalistic alternative to creationism. The special creation belief had dropped out of my mind many years before. And I could not remain in a suspended state. Acceptance of the only conceivable alternative was critical. Did the facts matter? Not to these guys as much. They were, in a they were drowning in a philosophical ocean. And they had to grasp hold of the, the first thing that gave them a semblance of life and hope, no matter how flimsy it was. These guys, they believed that nature was all there was. They believed only in the observable, the testable, quantifiable facts, and at least that is what they claimed and what they would have you and me believe. But at the heart of this science is a very religious statement, and religious is very dir dirty to, to uh, naturalism and, and evolution. It's a very religious and faith-like element that is neither testable nor verifiable. This is a quote from a guy named Carl Sagan. Some of you might have heard of him. Carl Sagan was, uh, there's a movie called Contact that will tell you a little bit about his life, but our taxpayer dollars helped support this guy. And uh, Carl Sagan was part of the Mariner Viking Voyager spacecraft expeditions uh, to Venus and other outer planets. And the one thing that they were looking for was extraterrestrial life. They were looking for aliens. And Carl Sagan said this. He said, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Does that sound like another religious statement you are all familiar with? God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Hmm. Cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. But then it goes on to say, he has put eternity into man's heart. I see that. Even in, even in Carl Sagan. He knows that something has forever been and forever will be. He's calling it nature. But I think that's eternity in his heart crying out for God. It is in our hearts. Naturalists have at the basis of their science the very same unprovable, untestable presupposition that they loathe Christians for holding to. And this is the religious heart of naturalism and evolution. It is the colored lens through which scientists see and interpret the world around us. Evolutionary science has not been freed from religion. It is steeped in it. And the only difference is God is not God, but man is. This showed up in a Berenstein Bears book. It was interesting. In the Berenstein Bears book, a little children's book, it says, Nature is all that was, is, or will ever be. Berenstein Bears. If you don't believe me, if you don't believe the scientists, believe Berenstein Bears, huh? This is not a scientific war. It is a spiritual war being fought for the minds and the hearts. I won't say just of our kids, because I know that I struggle with it. I know college, you know, college people struggle with it. Adults, it doesn't matter who you are. It is a struggle. It's a spiritual war being fought for our minds. Some questions for Carl Sagan is, if there's no sign of intelligent design in creation, then why are we looking to, uh, for the aliens who supposedly planted life here? 
Why would we rather look for, to the stars and find aliens instead of looking at the stars and seeing the handiwork of God? If you can believe that the cosmos has always been, it is no leap of logic to believe that God has always been. Fundamentally, the same idea, same thought. If you can believe in aliens, you can most certainly believe in God. But why don't we? But why don't we? Again, Chuck Colson, it's a book, How Now Shall We Live? He says, he kind of ordered out the anatomy of lie. Uh, hopefully you can read that up there. I'll just read through these. In our rebellious human nature, we want to replace God and be our own boss. We either surrender to him or continue to rebel. Those who choose rebellion must eliminate God from their thinking. But they have a problem. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Therefore, they must resolve the conflict by getting rid of the necessity of a creator. The observed natural change within species, such as uh, the finches, their beaks, uh, and pigeons, dogs, but they don't see the change from species to species, such as fish to frogs to people. They make the quantum leap of logic that just as creatures change within a species, which is called uh, microevolution, just small changes within a species, I shouldn't say small, but limited, they can change from one species to another macroevolution and that life itself can originate from non-life. Spontaneous generation, John and I were talking about a little bit. Aristotle came up with the idea that life could stem from non-life and, and scientists have since, uh, you know, to explain you know, worms and, and, and bodies and all kinds of other things, spontaneous generation. That was one of those scientific things that uh, you know, Aristotle propagated and thousands of years later was held by science to be the standard of truth. And now we know it to be stupid and it's totally you know, been unfounded, but yet we still believe in an element of, of spontaneous generation that uh, you know, life sprang up from nothing. It's a quantum leap of logic. They begin to teach and spread the theory. The theory becomes accepted scientific dogma. Millions of people believe the theory because science says so. And those who have been indoctrinated told and believe without questioning. With the lie now continue to support the theory without realizing how it developed or that it is a religious belief rather than scientific fact. Our culture has embraced evolution not because Darwin's theory fit the evidence, but because evolution was the only semi-rational way to explain away God. It's ultimately not the intelligent design that we are rejecting. It's the role of an intelligent designer that he wants to play in our life. And now we are right back in the Garden of Eden. A couple of things I want to show you that I think are evidence that supports creation on young earth. Part of this is um, there was a, a debate with, I don't know if any of you saw it, between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy, which was one of my childhood heroes growing up. And Bill Nye and, and Ken Ham were going at it in this debate. And, and uh, Bill Nye was given all the scientific evidence for, for evolution. And Ken Ham was given all kinds of biblical support for why evolution couldn't have happened. And I think he was, he was losing half of his audience because it's like if God created science and science and, and, and uh, our faith in God are not incompatible if they are actually inspired by each other, why don't, we use, why don't we use scientific proof in the discussion? Let's look at what science says. 
to look at the puzzle pieces and see if we can make sense of how they connect in every other direction. And so I want to give you a couple of examples this morning of some evidence that supports creation young earth. And the first slide that you're going to see up here is the basic building blocks of life. I know some of you scientists guys out there are thinking like protein, but no, I'm looking at Legos. Legos up here. Why is Legos one of the, one of the great sources of evidence of creation? And I will say complexity of design. Why have you not seen this? I mean, this... These Legos up here are the most simple form of Legos. So simple that a little baby can take one and stack them on top of each other and make these trains and everything else. But why have we not seen these Legos up here for thousands of years? Think about it in your mind. Why haven't we not seen these Legos? Why haven't people developed them up to this point in time? What? Yeah, plastic. So there's a lot of technology that goes into the material that's needed to make them. Where are these things made at? Are they made in somebody's basement? No. They're made in factories that mass produce these things and have, have computers. They've got arms and, you know, molds and all this stuff. I mean, the, the complexity of what goes in to make this basic building block of life is incredible. So incredible that it's hard to copy. I, I'm a purist. I buy Lego brand. I don't buy Mega Blocks. And the reason why is Mega Blocks, can I hear an amen from all you Lego guys out there? <laughs> all you Mega Blocks guys, you can't make a, leg, a Mega Block that perfectly matches up with Legos, with all the technology. It's, it's almost impossible. You can't do it. It's frustrating. Let's go to this next slide. I'll show you. Actually, yeah, it's a good one here. This is an... Another evidence of creation, irreducible complexity, intelligent design. What this is is a bacterial flagellum, and I'm trying to jump from the, the Lego illustration to this one to m make a connection in your mind. Because this is the most basic single-cell organism pretty much in the world that we know of. It's one of, the, one of the most basic. I know you look at the picture on the left and you're like, it looks like a corn dog. I know, it's, it's not a corn dog. It's a bacterial flagellum, single-cell organism, and it is made up of 40 different unique parts, 40 different parts that make this thing work. Some, some evolutionary scientists say that they borrowed from other, other single-cell organisms and took parts from them and to be able to make this one, but this has 30 unique parts just to it that aren't found anywhere else, this bacterial flagellum. 30 totally unique parts, it needs 40, and out without any single one of those parts, the whole thing falls apart. How many of you guys fish? How many guys fish? Don't be embarrassed of fishing. Come on, guys. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, John. Yeah. If you've ever fished and you're with your fishing rod, all it takes is one tiny nut, one tiny screw, the smallest little part to fall off, to not be present, and your whole fishing experience is composed of yelling and other things that you don't want to mention in church. It just totally ruins the experience. In the same way, this is irreducible, irreducible complexity argument says that it can't have evolved because all the pieces had to be present at the same exact time or the whole thing cannot exist. They had to be there and present. What's even crazier is that inside of all these living organisms is DNA. And DNA, I mean, watch a video about DNA. and It's incredible because DNA is the information that tells you uh, tells the cells how to replicate themselves. It's all the information written down. But to get DNA read, there's little machines that unravel the DNA and that read the DNA and then reconstruct the DNA. And I mean, there's it, evolution 
things are supposed to get simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler. The lower, you, the tinier you get, the further down you go. And when you start looking at, at these scientific things, you're like, it doesn't get simpler. It gets more complex. This is the simplest machine, and it takes all these other tiny little microscopic machines unraveling information, copying it, and replicating it. It is incredible. It couldn't have just happened. And I will say this over and over again. Billions of years, trillions of years, gazillions of years is too young of an age of our earth for evolution to have happened. It is not old enough for this to have just occurred on its own. They don't call it spontaneous generation because that was dis, uh, disproven from Aristotle's time. But I say this, what we are being sold is still akin to spontaneous generation. Let's go to the next slide. This is a bombardier beetle. This is where the talk gets fun. I know I was reading all kinds of like heady stuff and you're like, I don't care about this. This is where it gets practical. Bombardier beetle. It's called the bombardier beetle because he has a little chemical weapon in, in his bottom. He does. I know all you ladies who are married are like, yep, eh, eh, know all about that. Bombardier beetle. He's got hydrogen peroxide on one side and then he's got, what is that, hydro, uh, John, what does that say? Hydroquinone? I don't know how to say it. Close enough. Anyways, he got these two chemicals that uh, he uses to defend himself, and they go through the sphincter muscle into this uh, explosion chamber, and it like projects it out, this chemical explosion onto, onto other you know, animals or bugs that are trying to attack it. How can, neither one of these chemicals are good in and of themselves, and if they coexist in the same sac or you know, if it evolved, there's, there's like no practical reason for them to be isolated and yet, they, for them to both be present, they have to be present separately. Can you imagine if this beetle was developed in any other way with these two chemicals? It would just, it would spontaneously combust. It would blow up. It couldn't exist. Evidence of creation in the bombardier beetle. Let's go to the next slide here. Here's another evidence of creation. Similarities. Proof of evolution or common creator. This is proof of evolution a lot of times put up here. Human arm. Cat leg, well, uh, you know, one of their flippers. Then you've got a bat wing. We got fish and animals, humans, and birds all up there. Do you see similarities? Yeah, there's, there's similarities. You see bones that all like, you're like, wow, I can see how evolution could have existed. You know, I could see how they, they're so similar. Maybe that one is the parent of another one and another one and another one and so forth and so on. But let me show you the next slide here. Matt Kirkland's downstairs with the kids this morning, so he can't keep me on track with the art department. But does anybody know this painting? It's kind of hard to see. Anybody know who painted that painting right there? Monet. Good job, guys. Monet. Okay, let's see the next picture. It's a, it's a famous group of paintings that he did. I think it's called the, like the, the lily, lily Pond, something like that. Sound good? Okay. So there's one painting, another painting, another painting, ne next painting there. All right, wait, go back a second. Getting ahead of me. Now, did this painting on the left evolve? Was that the start, and then he started adding all the colors, and it slowly evolved to the one on the right? Is that what happened? No. Well, that's kind of weird. That's kind of confusing. What happened? They didn't evolve. What did that same guy, Monet, painted each one of these pictures separately. They did not evolve. He used similar colors. He used similar, you know, uh, similar techniques. He had uh, the same location. Does that make us think that they evolved? 
No, it makes us think they've got the same creator. I think similarities are proof of God. Similarities are proof of God. Let's go to this next slide. Uh, Scientists, evolutionary scientists, will point to a human and a monkey and say that a human and a monkey share 96, 98, everybody says a little different percentage, but a majority of your DNA is the same between a monkey and a chimp. I'm sorry, a monkey and and a human. But did you also know that 50% of your DNA is shared with a, next slide here, Peter, wait for it, with a banana. You don't see many, actually, you can buy this outfit for Halloween for 40 bucks on Amazon, just in case you want. (laughs) Do those percentage, those few percentages of DNA that separate us matter? If 50% of us is the same as as a banana, do you think those four, two, three, one, whatever it is that differentiate between us and monkeys, do you think it matters? Yes, it matters a whole lot. If you wrote out the whole strand of your DNA, uh, it's, I couldn't even understand the numbers when they were telling me about how long your DNA can stretch out. But they said the equivalent amount of information that separates you from a monkey could get you from here, and this is writing out your DNA, could get you from here to the moon and back like 40, 44 times. That is a lot of information. Those few percentage points make a huge difference in us. When I see that we have much of the same DNA between monkeys, chimps, mice, whatever you want to look at, I look at that and say, yep, they have the same creator. The same creator. Let's go to the next one. Evidence of creation. Not all dating methods line up. This is one of those big pieces, and it's hard for us to know how to deal with, especially a lot of geologists. You know, they wrestle, especially if they're geologists and they're Christian. They're like, man, but radiocarbon dating, are these ways that we date, uh, you know, uh, fossils and, and rocks and everything else to figure out how old everything is. It's, I'd, I would say it's like a puzzle piece that has, you know, that one end that fits perfectly into another piece. It's a hard one to try to, to reconcile and to make sense of. But the problem with, with our dating techniques is there's other ways of dating that we can find. We can take constant, scientific constants and work forwards or backwards and figure out if it makes sense. Um, I won't go into all of them, but uh, the, um, the relationship between the moon and the earth is one way that we can. There's a physical relationship there that makes it seem like we have a young earth um, I've got some documents I'm more than happy to like, share with you afterwards. Uh, the, the heat of the sun. The sun is one of those things that it's been getting gradually hotter at a consistent, measurable rate. And if we back that back you know, thousands and you know, millions of years, the sun would not have been warm enough to sustain life on the earth. Kind of interesting, isn't it? Don't hear about that much. But this, I like the practical things that I can understand and not the one that takes a, a you know, physicist or a mathematician. Evidence of creation. Not all dating methods line up. Do you know what this is? Anybody? What? Salami? Are you hungry? Is it time for... Yeah, time to end. I'll get there soon. This is dinosaur tissue. Soft tissue. This is Jurassic Park real life right here. This is dinosaur tissue from a T-Rex, no less. This was discovered in a dinosaur bone. This is soft tissue. The elasticity was still discovered in this piece of soft tissue in this bone. Hold on, when did dinosaurs go extinct? 
Did they walk with humans? We're always told that they didn't. But when the scientists, I'm sorry, not scientists, but when this was discovered, you know what the, the comment on it was? We need to rethink how long it takes for tissue to decompose. That was the conclusion. I look at it and say, maybe we need to reconsider our dating techniques and methods. It can't just fit in one direction. It has to fit in all the different directions for it to be proven, for it to be consistent. We've got to be intellectually honest. So the dinosaur tissue issue, as it's commonly called, is a big issue. The chances of life beginning on Earth, let's go to the next slide. Chances of life beginning on Earth are slim, but you know that the chances of a planet being able to support life is probably even slimmer, even slimmer, where we are, we are perfectly positioned in the galaxy. I mean, uh, uh, astronomers look into space and we get so excited. Oh, there's water on a planet. There's probably life. There may be. You know what? If we find life on another planet, that's not going to shake my faith at all because God doesn't say that there is or isn't in Scripture. We don't know. I think it's very unlikely personally but we get so excited about just water being found on another planet. So excited. But you know, the chances, you know, a planet has to have correct axis, rotation, speed, orbit, distance uh, from the sun, from a moon. You know, all these other things have to align up for life to be able to even exist on a planet. But then the chances of life actually beginning on that planet is just like billions and trillions, gazillions of years is not enough. Evolutionists, I think, are portraying a young Earth scenario. Flip it on its head a little bit there. It's too young of an Earth for everything to have happened that they say has happened. Sin is a proof of creation. Bible talks about it. Sin is evident in creation. Bible deals with it and explains it and it makes sense. Bible tells me so. You know that we can use the Bible to prove itself. We're also often told that you cannot use the Bible to prove itself. But the Bible has been proven true 100% of the time. In matters of history, science, archaeology, prophecy, etc., the Bible has always been proven true. Can we use the Bible to tell us what truth is reliably? Yes. Can we trust science to tell us what is truth 100% of the time? No. Science is constantly changing, constant, constantly in limbo. Our understanding of the full picture, again, using the puzzle analogy, we're trying to put together a puzzle that is multidimensional, and we don't even know what the picture is supposed to look like to help us and guide us. We are that child in the library not knowing how to read and trying to make sense of the library full of information in other languages. Can we trust science to tell us what truth is? I don't think so. It can help. But don't rely on it. If we had no clue of evolution, would we ever have interpreted the Bible in such a way that we would say there's a day-age gap theory. Some of you guys, I'm going to just throw these out there, but sometimes people try to, to make evolution and Scripture merge together. But my question is this. If we had no clue about evolution, would we ever look at Scripture and say that it teaches evolution? We don't. And this brings up the, the, the issue of the authority of Scripture. Does Scripture interpret science, or do we allow science to interpret Scripture? And I will say scripture has the authority every time because it's been 100% true 
every single time has been proven true. God nailed it on the head the first time, every time, historically, archaeologically, scientifically, prophetically, every single time. And how many times did it take Thomas Edison to figure out the truth? 10,000 plus? The Bible is not at odds with science. It inspires science. We should not be ashamed as Christians to believe that God was and is and is to come when evolutionists make a similar, untestable, improvable, unscientific assumption about nature. There are plenty of scientific reasons to question the validity of evolution. We haven't figured it all out yet. The Bible, not science, is the final authority because it, not science, has been consistently proven true 100% of the time. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true and all men a liar. Let me give you one last closing illustration that I think is very telling of how God has written eternity on our hearts. In that same debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, the science guy, I don't know if it's worth watching or not. You can check it out and see. But one of the best quotes came from Bill Nye in support of of creation. Not Ken Ham. I love Bill Nye's quote in support of creation. This is what he said. Bill Nye was explaining one of those big scientific things about why the universe is expanding. That was one of the questions. Why is the universe expanding? He says, why is the universe expanding? Do you know why? Nobody knows why the universe is expanding. Dark energy, dark matter, which are all mathematical ideas that seem to reckon well. Get this. You don't go home with anything. Get this, what Bill Nye said. Isn't it reasonable That whatever is out there causing the universe to expand is here also. And we just haven't figured out how to detect it. Did you get what Bill Nye just said? Whatever is the cause out there, isn't it unreasonable for us to think that it is here and we have not figured out how to detect it? We are looking for aliens on other planets to explain life. Looking at crystals as an explanation for how life began. Maybe it's a little bit closer. We haven't figured it out how to detect it. God has revealed himself to us in nature. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And our condition is no different than Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When God is right there, and they still doubted. They still lacked trust. They had all the evidence before them, as we do in creation. And the decision we have to make is no different. Are we going to trust God? That he knows best. That he loves us because he created us. And that we're his children. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's pray. Dear Father God, uh, thank you for this day. And there's a lot of information this morning that we talked through in creation and evolution and a lot of heady stuff and definitely not enough time to go in depth into it. But what is evident is that we can look in creation, whether it's the birds, the bushes, Whatever it might be, God, we can look at them and we see your hand in them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies 
pour forth speech. They are singing your praises. They are pointing to you, God. Father, help us not to be so prideful that feeling like we have to figure everything out. Help us to trust you. Help us not to be afraid of, of science and, and being able to go and explore your glorious wonders and creation and thinking that that will draw us away from, your, from faith in you. God, help us as Christians. Help the church. Help us to encourage our students to go and study science and to be able to glorify you in and through that, not to be afraid of it, but to embrace it as a gift from you to help us better understand you and just the way that you have created. God, help us to deal with those issues that it really comes down to at the heart of the issue is that we can't trust. It's hard for us to trust. We deny you. So God, help us. Replace that, uh, to replace that lack of faith. Help us to, to see your hand. Help us to follow your hand. Trust your hand, God, so that we can, we can find our purpose in you, so that we can glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.